Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. If you buy them, we'll turn with me to Matthew eleven twenty nine. Uh, we've been there for quite a few weeks, and we've been looking at the example of Christ. And so that, to me, explains the reason we're spending so much time here. I think you could agree that Jesus left us the best example to follow. And there's a lot to learn from the example that he left us. So let's go ahead. Somebody read verse 29, Matthew 11 again. Thank you, Dan. Again, our focus is the middle of the verse. Where Jesus says to learn of me. And we discussed this several times over the past several weeks. And certainly no one uh, can compare uh, to his holiness, uh, to anything in his life. He is indeed the perfect pattern for you and I uh, to follow. We looked at early on in this particular study on the example of Christ, what was involved in imitating Christ. And I want to remind you, imitating Christ is not optional. If we are a believer, imitating Christ is essential. Now, by the way, we are known as Christians. What does that mean? Followers of Christ, exactly. And that's what we need to be. So he is our example. Look at several things uh, that Christ did we cannot imitate, uh, like his healing, uh, his uh, mediation for man, dying for sin. We can't do that. Uh, so... Uh, some miracles that he did, uh, some works of mediator, uh, some temporary works that apply to the time he lived. But we're now focusing on the areas where we can and we should imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. We spoke about the purity of his holiness. What a pattern he left for us. Now, again, if we're going to gauge his holiness, how holiness, how holy was Christ? Holy, holy, holy. Completely holy, perfectly holy. We also look at his obedience to the Father's will. And that certainly is a pattern that you and I need to imitate. We looked at the third thing, we looked at his self-denial as a pattern for us. Also, how diligent he was in fulfilling the work that God had given him to do. We need to imitate that. Whatever work God has given us to do, we need to be about the Father's business. We looked at the fact that Jesus didn't offend people on purpose. Now, the gospel does, uh, but he reached out in love and to people, and that's a pattern we need to follow as well. But also, his humility and meekness. He himself said he was meek and lowly, and truly he was, and we need to be as well. And the, the seventh thing is this, and we'll look at tonight, and that's how content he was. Now, think about, as we consider, and I know most of you read the New Testament, at least the gospel, and... Uh, do you ever remember Jesus complaining about anything? Yes. No, yeah. Now, he certainly upset over sin and wrongdoing, but... You never heard him complain about his lot in life. Now, remember, and you, of course, it's, we're entering the Christmas season. By the way, Advent does uh, begin on Sunday. Uh, his lot in life was a, a condition of poverty. Now, think about this. Uh, he was, his parents, now Joseph was not his, was his earthly father, but not his 
biological father, we could say, God's his father. But Joseph and Mary raised him, Mary his mother, and they were from, they were not wealthy people at all. Where was he born? In a manger. What do you think about that, Dan? Absolutely. It's a very, very poor place uh, to be to be born. So, as he lived here for 33 and a half years, thereabout, he was deprived of the comforts of this world most of the time. In fact, Jesus made the statement, he had nowhere to lay his head. Does that mean he never slept? No, what does that mean? Didn't have a house. He didn't have a house. And I wish I could remember the verse because I thought about it uh, just now. But at the time when Jesus was ministering to a crowd, and uh, I'm paraphrasing, at the end of the day, the Bible says they all went to their houses, but not Jesus. Why? He didn't have one. He simply didn't have one. When he was asked about whether or not it was right to pay taxes, he couldn't even reach in his pocket and pull out a coin and say, who's on this coin? He borrowed that coin. Someone else gave him that coin to use as an illustration. And so, Phyllis, you're right. We never heard him complain about his lot in life. He never murmured uh, because he was perfectly content with God's will for his life. And what's interesting, wouldn't you agree that he faced some pretty degrading circumstances? Isn't that true? And by the way, who was he? He was the Son of God. He was God in the flesh. And even though he suffered some degrading things, he never once resisted. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah is prophesying, and we saw it lived out 2000, or 750 years later, 2,000 years ago. And if we put that in our own words, what's, what's Isaiah tell us about Jesus? Did he ever what, Lamenda? He never complained. And if anybody had a right to do, who did? Jesus did. He absolutely had the right. Now remember, we're looking at Christ as our example. And what an example to follow. Because I need to learn. I can only speak for myself. I need to learn to manage difficult times with a contented spirit. I need to learn to manage them with no complaints. <laughs> but i got to tell you, I have complained. But I need to learn not to. I need to manage those difficult times without foolishly charging God from being unfair. 
And the truth of the matter is, it shouldn't matter what difficulty comes my way, I need to handle it the way he handled difficulty in his life. Now think about this. The poorest and most afflicted Christian is wealthy. Would you agree with that? Think about that. 1 Corinthians 3.23. Simple little verse. And I don't know how God led me to this verse about 40 years ago, the first time I remember. And uh, I was kind of discouraged. Our My first pastor here had resigned and we were left in a difficult situation of how to, to choose another pastor. We'd never done it before. I'd never done it. And I was just looking for a verse one day to help encourage my heart. And I came across this verse. And you are Christ. Then it dawned on me. No matter what I face. No matter how... Sometimes when I see a difficulty, it's not probably as difficult as I think it is. But it doesn't matter. I belong to who? I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. And I've never forgot that. Now, through the years I have learned that because I'm a believer, I have everything because I have Christ. Amen. I have everything because I have Christ. And everything that we have is given from the gracious hand of God. Amen. Everything. Let me ask a couple of questions. How many here would say tonight... That your sins have been forgiven. And I would. How many here can say, I have been reconciled to God? Amen. Our sins are forgiven. We've been reconciled to God. So that tells me. If you're going to complain, shut up. (laughs) My mother's in heaven now. Thank God for that. And I remember quite a few years before she passed away, it was Christmas time. And Rhonda, you keep your mouth shut right now, okay? Make Make no sounds, okay? Sometimes I can get grumpy. Rhonda, I said don't make no faces. She knows I love her. And uh, I never told my mother that I was kind of grumpy. My mother called me. She said, what have you got to complain about? This is before she was saved now. Look what God's done for you. You talk about opening your eyes. Folks, we are blessed beyond measure. I am blessed beyond measure. 
We have so many precious promises from God. And to me, one of the, and there are so many of them, but one of the best ones is the fact that no matter what we face in life, God says he will never forsake you. Been uh, quite a few years ago now, a pastor friend of mine, Brother Hartman, uh, was in VA hospital. And they had done surgery on one of the vertebrae in the back. They went through his throat to get to it. And uh, this gal comes in. She said she was a nurse. Looked like a drill instructor to me. And she, she said, Mr. Hartman, you, you need to take this pill. And I think that pill was about that long. Now, I might be exaggerating there a little bit. And Brother Hartman said, well, ma'am, uh, I've just had this surgery, and I can't even swallow. She said, do you want a straw? At that time, I said, Brother Hartman, I love you, but i got to go. It was time for me to abandon him. I wasn't going to sit there and watch him try to swallow that pill. But aren't you glad that Jesus will never leave us? Hebrews 13, verse 5. Be content with what? Whatever you have. And the reason is, God says no matter what. No matter what, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Now remember, who's making that promise? Jesus, God is. Yeah, either one. And you have to agree tonight, folks. Our whole life, every minute of it, has been an experience of the faithfulness of God to his promises. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. So God says he will never leave us or forsake us. We spend a lifetime experiencing his faithfulness to his promises. So that means we'll never have trouble. No. Now James says, count it joy. When we fall into whatever temptation we may face. Now, by the way, not with evil, but with difficult times. That's what James is talking about here. Now, remember... Remember, God will not tempt us with evil because he cannot be tempted with evil, okay? So he's talking about testing your faith, trials, tribulations. So James says, count it joy. <laughs> not going to tell you, I don't remember the last time I counted it joy to fall into trials, temptations. But he gives a reason that the trying of our faith brings about Patience. Now, the reason for that, we ought to count it joy. The Bible tells us 
that these trials we face, these difficult times in life, are useful and they're beneficial to us. They purge our sins. They help to wean us from the world. And they turn our salvation. So, count it all joy. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. If we say we live in Him, how shall we walk? What he did. He is our example. Now, one of the reasons John wrote 1 John, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God, I know that. But his goal in this letter is to give certain signs and marks, whether negative or positive, to test whether or not a man's claim to be a Christian is true or false. And John gives a test. 1 John 5.13. So we've got to interpret that in the light of this verse. Because the whole point of John's epistle is the proof that we have been saved... And the whole point is, we are imitating Christ. If you say you live in him, you ought to walk like he does. <laughs> that's, the, that's the proof in the pudding situation. We walk like Christ because we've been saved. We imitate him. And that's why John wrote this letter, that we can know. Now, I want to say that needs to be preached today in our churches. If you claim to be a Christian, walk like him. And no matter what you claim, if your life is not imitating Christ, you are not a Christian. <clears throat> Doesn't matter who you are or what you say. Now, remember what John said. He that says, I abide in him. I abide in Christ. Those who say that. And certainly that would give indication of interest in and communion with Jesus Christ. That's what it means. But John says, the only way to validate that claim is if you do what? If you live like him. If you imitate him. Because if you're not imitating Christ, you don't abide in him. You don't live in him. We have to follow the example he left. Let me back up. We will want to follow the example he left if we abide in Christ. That's the whole point of John's example. Of his epistle, I mean. Hear this very well. Every Christian is bound to the imitation of Christ under the penalty 
of forfeiting his claim to Christ. If you don't walk in Christ, if you don't follow his example, your claim has no value. You will imitate Christ. So why is this imitation of Christ necessary? First of all, it's from the established order of salvation. Now think about this. And by the way, who established how a person is to be saved? God did. And that cannot be changed. God has appointed the end. He's also established the means and the order that you and I can obtain the ultimate end. Now you need to remember that once we are saved, that's first, that's the order. Once you're saved, God has predetermined then that we are to be conformed to the image of his Son. So conformity to Christ is the method that God uses that brings many people to glory. Romans 8, 29. Thank you, Phyllis. Paul speaks of those who God foreknew. He said those he foreknew once they were saved, that's the order here, once they're saved, then God predestined that they be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If you are saved, that is God's predetermined end for your life, and you will be Conform to Christ. Now, by the way, it's never reversed. You don't conform to Christ to get saved. You conform to Christ. Why? Because you are saved. You can't reverse the order. Second thing about that. The nature of Christ's mystical I'll explain that in a moment, requires conformity. When I think about Christ mystical, I'm speaking about the relationship between Jesus and the church. There's a mystical union. Jesus is the head of the church. Would you agree with that? Yes. We are the body of Christ. That is the mystical union. Now, if we're not conforming to the head, Jesus, Christ is not, for lack of a better word, single-headed. Because the body, the church, cannot be of a different nature than the head. So the body must conform to the head. And who's the head? Jesus Christ. 
the mystical union. Now think about this. Remember, the body of Christ, this mystical union, requires that the body be like the head, Jesus Christ. We imitate him. But if it was a different nature than the head, what would happen was, would be that it would represent Christ as an image or an idea like the one that Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel chapter 2. The head of gold, uh, the breast and arms of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, parts of clay, if you will. And so the head and the body were different. But when it comes to Christ, the nature of that mystical union between Jesus as the head and Christ and us as the body of Christ, they have to be the same. And the only way it can be the same is if we, as the body of Christ, as individual believers, imitate the head. He is our example. Now think about this. Christ the head is pure. What should we be? Pure. Christ the head is holy. What should we be? Holy. And because he is pure and holy, members of that body cannot be sensual. They have to be like he is. Now Paul gives a description of Christ mystical. And he describes members of Christ as they should be described. He describes him of the same nature and quality with the head. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 48 and 49. All right, thank you, Dan. As I look at those verses, and we could use maybe a few other passages as well in the Scriptures. Does the Bible tell us that there's a difference between earthly and heavenly? Yes. And it's distinguishable. And Paul is correct in verse 49. We have... Born the image of the earthly. Who has? All of us have. And to some degree, we still do. But Paul says, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And that image, or resemblance of Christ, will be complete and perfect after the resurrection. John said it well, we don't know what we shall be, but when I see him, we'll be just like him. But understand, bearing the image of Christ has to first begin here on earth 
through the work of regeneration. And that's an ongoing process. We begin, we become more and more like Him, and it will, our, our heavenly image will be perfect after our resurrection. The third thing about this resemblance of Christ, it's necessary because of the communion we have with Him in the same spirit and the same grace of holiness. Psalm 45, verse 7. I think it's kind of interesting here. We know that God loves righteousness. We know uh, He hates wickedness. And I realize this is a, uh, certainly talking about Christ, anointing Him with the oil of gladness. But He said, above your fellows. That means your co-partners. Those who will come to love God through Jesus Christ. And we're that way because we participate with Christ in the same Spirit. And so the Spirit He overflowingly poured out on Christ, God gives us a portion of that Spirit as well. We have communion with Him. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. Thank you, Dan, for reading that. <clears throat> now, I know Ezekiel's writing. God is speaking. And God says, it's going to come a day. I'll put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And God says to Ezekiel, you will keep them and you will do them. How can God be so sure? He's God. But understand this. This is what we would call the same spirit and principle. Wherever it is, wherever that's an operation, there has to be the same fruits and the same operations will be produced. That's how it works. We have a communion as all believers with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He's poured part of that spirit out on us. Now here's what's interesting. The very design and the goal of God in the infusion of the spirit of grace, Ezekiel clearly spells it out for us. And the bottom line is this, practical holiness and obedience is the reason God gives us his spirit, because we cannot do it without that. We simply cannot do it. And the bottom line is the innate property of the Holy Spirit in us is to elevate our minds it's to help set our affections on heavenly things. We've been preaching about that in Colossians. 
It's also there to purge our heart from worldly contamination, but also to make us fit for a life of holiness and a life of obedience. Friend, understand, we cannot do it on our own. But now that we're saved, we have that spirit, we have that communion with God, with other believers, and it's there to help us live a life pleasing to God. So this new nature is assimilating with us. And it changes us into the same image of Christ, who is our heavenly head, that mystical union between Christ and the church. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Thank you, Phyllis. We are changed into the same image. Image of who? Image of Christ. We're the body of Christ. He's the head, that mystical union we talked about. And we're changed into His glory, from glory to glory, and we're changed by the Spirit of the Lord. A fourth reason why it's necessary to imitate Christ was the fact that he came to this world in a body of flesh. First of all, we've talked about this for the last several months now, several years, a lot of years in fact. Jesus is who? He's God. And what can God do? Anything he wants. Uh, if, if God were going to come into our world, let's go before he came, how could he come? Anyway, he wants to. But he chose to put on human flesh. He chose to become one of us. Now, several weeks ago, five or six now, when we first started this uh, example of Christ, uh, we shared a, a problem that some people have, and uh, they're theory would be, or their teaching would be, you imitate Christ in in order to get saved. And, of course, that would be, you know, like he lived here on this earth. And we certainly, uh, that's not scriptural. You're saved first, then you imitate Christ. And that's clear for the Word of God. But we have to understand that he had to be flesh. He had to be flesh. And the satisfaction of his blood was the main reason he became flesh. So he could die for our sins. Matthew 20, verse 28. All right, thank you, Dan. Now, we know he didn't come to to be served, but to serve. And also to give his life a ransom for many. So that's the <coughs> ultimate goal of the incarnation, that he might give his life as a ransom. So how did he give his life as a ransom? What happened on the cross? He died. He shed his blood on the cross as a ransom for our sins. 
Now think about this. Everything he did was an example for us. He has put before us a pattern of holiness that is his children we need to imitate. 1 Peter 2.21. Thank you. That's the example Christ left for us. That's the example we are challenged to imitate in our lives. Philippians 2.5. And what was Christ willing to do? To suffer and die for our sins. Another reason why it's important to imitate Christ is because if we're going to be one of his disciples, we're going to have to imitate him. Luke 14, 27. What's that last phrase say? You cannot what? You can't be my disciple. If you don't bear your cross, if you don't die out to yourself and die out to the world, you cannot be my disciple. So if we're going to be admitted to that group of followers of Christ, we have to imitate him. John 12, verse 26. Thank you, Dan. We have to follow him. We have to live like he lived. And if we are sincere in our belief, if what we say with our mouth is in our heart, we will submit to that. And we are bound to imitate Christ, not only by God's command, but even by our own consent. We agree to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And hear me well, church. If we profess interest in Christ, when our hearts never consented to follow and imitate an example, we are deceiving ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves. Because the Bible says that those who genuinely consent with their mouth will also consent with their heart. They will agree to follow Christ. Another reason it's important to imitate Christ is because his honor is at stake. And that's why he left us an example that we might honor him in how we live. Think about this for a moment. For the most part, what does the world think about the church? 
Say it again. Okay, they think we're crazy. Don't know what we're talking about. You think they think some of us are hypocrites? Yeah. Uh, a lot of things about negative things about the church. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about us, the body of Christ. But my friend, there's no better way to stop the reproaches of the world and no better way to vindicate the name of Christ from the reproach of the world than to live like he lived. Be imitators of Christ. Live like he lived. And there's no way Wisdom can be justified of her children, except it be that way. We must imitate him. And the only way we can even begin to hope to stop the negative talk about Christ and the church is to make sure our lives are being controlled by the example of Jesus Christ. And we are imitating him Every day of our lives. Would you agree the world not only hears what we say, what we profess, they see what we practice. Isn't that true? So here's the bottom line. We have to show a consistency in our profession and our practice. Because, my friend, if we don't, we will never hope to vindicate or bring honor to the name of Christ. Ever. Our profession and our practice must line up. Another reason why it's important that we imitate Christ. It is so important. Now, by the way, I realize we live in a world that no matter how close you live to God, there's still some who will accuse. But my friend, the closer we live to God, the more we imitate Christ, the more we can honor his name by refuting those claims of the world. Jesus makes a difference in our life. So what then are some of the inferences of that? What are some conclusions we can draw? Well, number one, if everybody who claimed to be saved were, were imitating Christ, if that would be true, then those claims are not just. But we know something here, folks. There are a lot of people who claim Christ who what? They're not Christians. They say they are, but they are not. And it breaks my heart for that to happen. Because, church, if we're a child of God, we need to live like it. Not just inside these walls, but in our community where we work, where we do our business. And by the way, true Christianity, true Christianity does not approve 
of loose living. The Bible doesn't. And so understand something, folks. Those who bring reproach may claim to be among us, but they are not. They are not. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Do it when, Jason? In this present age, in this present world. Paul is writing this young preacher. Paul, Titus, you need to know this. What God has done bringing salvation for all men, it teaches us that we have to stop living ungodly lives, stop living with worldly lust, and live soberly and righteously in this present time. Do it now. Second of all, those who claim Christ, who are not sincerely trying to imitate Him, as their example, imitate the holiness of his life, I want to suggest to you the numbers that the Gallup poll shows in America who claim to be Christian when it comes to true believers is a lot smaller than you read. How many know it's easy to claim to be a Christian? Yes. But if those who claim that are not imitating His holiness, how small that genuine number must be. I don't care how sweet you talk. doesn't matter how flowery the words you use. They don't mean anything unless our walk is strict before the Lord. My friend, I understand salvation is free by the grace of God. But my friend, the Bible says it counts your cost. Because serving God is going to cost. And it could be financial, but I'm not talking about that at all. It costs a lot to serve God. If genuine Christianity could be without denying ourselves, if it could be without treading the narrow way, if that's what constitutes a Christian, then a a large portion of the world would be entitled to that name. But my friend, the way is narrow. The gate is narrow. But only those who follow his example 
if we include those who are living daily for Christ. I want to tell you that those who claim the name Christ, that number is going to dwindle. Because they're not truly following the Lord. Understand this. I don't think I'm wrong. I believe that the vast majority of those who claim to be a Christian, they have a name to live, but in reality they are dead. They've never really known Him truly. Romans 6 verse 13. Thank you, Dan. Now let me kind of give you a little bit of insight here, and then we're going to close with this verse tonight. Paul gives some instructions here to new believers. Don't yield the members of your body for unrighteousness, but yield them to God. And he says, as those who are alive from the dead. So understand this. If we are alive in Christ, we will give even our body to Jesus. We will serve him with everything we have. And there are many who claim to name Christ as their Savior, and they live like the rest of the world. They don't yield themselves to God. And the reason is the demands of Christ are too high for them. And so they come to that fork in the road. One says the narrow way, and one says the broad way. And they say in their hearts, the narrow way is not for me. My friend, that's why it's so important to follow the example of Christ. Let's stop here for tonight and let's go to the Lord in prayer.